white privilege. And when you say those two words, it just is like a fuse goes off for a lot of white people because they don't want somebody telling them to check their privilege. And so I know that you and I both have struggled in these days with, hey, if the phrase is the trip up, let's get over the phrase and let's get down to the heart. Sure. Let's get down to what then do you want to call it? And I think maybe a great thing for me is to call it white blessing that I'm living in the blessing of the curse that happened generationally mm-hmm. that allowed me to grow up in Atlanta and you know I want to speak to every brother and sister that I have my black brothers and sisters my Asian brothers and sisters my Arab brothers and sisters my Hispanic brothers and sisters and even my white brothers and sisters. Hear the heart of God. Please be done with bitterness. Please put away hate. We live in a great land. Let me shout it before you respond to me. It was founded by people just like you flawed people but those framers frame the liberties that every one of us enjoy today if you hate america please give me your alternative what's up family thank you for tuning into another episode of wtf podcast with the facts i am marielle Um, If you are new to the podcast, welcome. Um, If you're listening in your car, you're watching on YouTube, whatever it may be, thank you. I appreciate you for tuning in. Um, If you are new around here, we talk about everything on this podcast, from race to politics to culture. Um, But the most important thing that we do is we come with the facts. So we talk about very... um, I think in a lot of ways, taboo topics that really should not be taboo topics. Uh, and so I am, I'm really excited um, to just kind of unpack a lot of different um, conversations and just have different conversations. And so today I'm very excited to have Joe Lumen with me. And we're going to be talking about um, white fragility and the church and what we've seen in those evangelical spaces. So I'm really excited to welcome her to the podcast. Let me pull her up real quick. There she is. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me here. Of course. Of course. So listen, let's just dive right on in it. So for people who have never heard the term white fragility, what, what is a good way to explain that and unpack it for people who've never heard about it? So white fragility is a term that was coined by um, Dr. D'Angelo, who is a white woman um, who was noticing that people, white people were really uncomfortable and and often defensive um, when when they were confronted by information about racial inequality and racial injustice. So white fragility was this, um, became this term to explain that defensiveness and that discomfort and that um, almost rejection of anything that has to do with racial inequality or anything to anything to do with racial injustice. So that's white fragility, just white people having an immediate negative reaction and rejection towards anything 
any conversation about racial inequality and injustice. And I think that's really important to kind of launch this conversation for people to have that understanding because, and I want to say this, Louis Giglio is not the only person that we've seen fall prey to this, especially in the white evangelical spaces. Um, we have seen Andy Stanley who posted this, I don't even, <laughs> I don't even have the words for what it was, but basically giving the illusion, and I probably will post this, um, you know, so people can understand what we're talking about in context, but um, of, of basically saying George Floyd's death was an invitation um, and that now he accepts it and comparing George Floyd to a modern day Samson, which was yeah. just really weird to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then um, there was a pastor, his name is Rod Parsley, who was talking to black and brown people and basically telling them that he had a word from the Lord and it was that, you know, black and brown people need to stop being bitter. And so we, we keep seeing these, these examples of that. Um, and you, you made a comment, I think in your um, IG live about that interaction, especially with Louis Giglio and Lecrae, that it was violent. And I want to kind of unpack that um, just a little bit. So what did you mean by that? And kind of explain to us how that was a, basically an act of violence that he was committing in that moment. So white fragility in general is violence because what it's what white fragility communicates to all of us people of color but particularly to black people since the conversation was about george floyd and the conversation has been about racial inequality in specifically against black people um white fragility says your experience your reality um this inequality that you experience in in america right now is not as important as my feelings so the fact that our children, um, you know, because it's, it's all children of color, the fact that our children cannot go to school without experiencing racial inequality, without experiencing microaggressions, without having to prove themselves three times over, uh, the fact that black boys cannot walk around without moms having to be worried that they might not make it home, um, the fact that black, black women and black femmes cannot... Um, you know, can be killed without any justice. None of that matters compared to our feelings. Mm -hmm. And that is terribly violent because what that is saying is we need, for us to be able to listen to you, for us to be able to acknowledge that there is racial inequality and for us to be able to fight alongside you for justice and for equality, you need to center our feelings. Not, not the facts, not your pain, not the inequality, not everything that's happened to you. You need to center our feelings. And that is, again, violence. That is saying the lives of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color are less important than white feelings. Mm -hmm. So my discomfort should be centered above your humanity. Um, that's terribly violent because what white people need to do with their feelings is sit with them and get over them and fight alongside us for justice. What they don't need to do is demand that we sit down with those feelings and coddle them and treat them like they, we need to just protect their feelings because reality is we're fighting for our humanity here. We can't fight for our humanity and their feelings at the same time. Absolutely. And, and I think, honestly, you see that 
even in who they bring to the conversation to have about race, right? Um, one of the things that I've seen and I've noticed is a lot of these pastors who, white pastors who've had these um, conversations about race, whether it's panels or, you know, whatever it is, is a lot of times the the black and brown people that they're bringing to the table are somehow um, connected to the platform, right? So they they rely on that platform, even with, and this is not a knock on Lecrae, but even with Lecrae. So um, he is connected in a sense of, he was one of the headliners for the Passion Conference, which is this huge evangelical conference for college students, right? And so even with, um, there's a pastor here, Jensen Franklin, he did an entire panel um, about race and the people that were black and brown on the panel were people who were on the staff. So for me, that plays into the white fragility part of it because you know that they're not going to push. They're not going to challenge you because this is a part of their livelihood. This is a part of how they provide for their families. And Absolutely. so even in that sense, it's protecting the feelings of or your feelings in that sense because you don't want to invite somebody that is going to who doesn't care about you know that you're the pastor and he doesn't have anything to lose exactly he's going to exactly. say what they have to say because they don't have anything to lose and exactly. it, it, it even right. goes further than that yeah. because um when 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 churches invite black or brown evangelical people to speak or when they invite you know black and brown um staff members that that's called tokenizing we know that but just for listeners, tokenizing is using a black or brown person to be able to look like an ally. And that is to um, white supremacy, an arm of white supremacy. And the reason why that's problematic is because it makes you look like you're an ally. It makes you look like you care about racial injustice, but it's just a way to get, get off without accountability. So you can say, well, I did bring something. I did have a conversation with Lecrae. I did have a conversation with staff members. So you wash your hands off of real accountability to be able to look right, but you're really not interested in actual, real, um, transformative change. Absolutely. You just want to look the part. And that is deceptive, manipulative, and honestly, it, to me, it's offensive because it's treating us like we are dumb. Mm -hmm. Like we cannot see beyond the fact that they are not committed to true change, but they just want to look the part so they don't lose their business because that's, that's how they are treating the church like a business. And if I make too many people uncomfortable, then I'm going to lose a lot of customers here. Um, so it, it's, it's offensive to their members and it's offensive to the community as a whole, because if they are truly committed to racial justice, I want to see I want to see churches invite non-evangelical black women. I want to see churches invite, you know, queer women. I want to see them invite in, indigenous people. I want to see them invite, you know, different experiences that they can actually relate. Like they can actually not feel like they are in an echo chamber, um, but that they are really being uncomfortable and sitting in. Wow, this is really what's happening. What does it look like to be? black Muslim in America, are they willing to listen to that story? Because Absolutely. that story is one that Christians have to listen to because Christians have been violent against Muslim people. And being black and Muslim in America is a very, very difficult identity to hold because they are very marginalized from different corners. So 
if you're only inviting voices that don't ruffle feathers and make you feel just comfortable enough and beyond that that you know that they are going to lose something if they say something uncomfortable and you hold that power if you hold power against the voice that is speaking then you're not being you're not being honest about having the conversation you just want to not be held accountable for it Absolutely. And I think even for me, going back and I've watched that clip so many times because I just I'm just dumbfounded every time. But the thing that was interesting to me was watching. Here's a white man saying, OK, this makes me uncomfortable. And even though it's the truth of what is already called, I get the privilege of I'm going to rename it. And that for me was that was like quintessential white privilege. No, you don't get to rename this. Like it is what it is. And I think for me, one of the issues that we've seen with white pastors is they are centering themselves um, as the dominant voice in the conversation. And to me, you know what I'm saying? So to me, I think that that has been one of the damning things. And one of the things that I'm like, that's exactly what we're talking about. And I honestly feel like, because for for many times they are the go-tos, right? They they are, and not because they're the most knowledgeable. And I want to be very clear in that. It's because of resources, opportunities, things of that nature, that they're able to position themselves in a way where they are the dominant voices for theology. They are the dominant voices for conferences. They are the dominant voices for books. And this is the one space that you cannot put yourself as the dominant voice in because it's not your experience. It's not your story to tell. And you can't get that education. You have to sit back and listen. And I think they're struggling. They are. They are are struggling to the point that they are, they are convincing themselves they can. So I've had two interactions that were shocking to me. Well, maybe shocking is not the word. Uh, Actually, I was not surprised, but also I was, they are just disgusting, to be honest. One pastor that told me, well, I am not black. I am not brown. So I've never experienced racism in my life. However, I am, I have been called to speak about the word of God and the word of God speaks about everything. So I can speak about everything. No, no, you do not get to. Uh, And we all have been called by God. So no, you don't get to, you get to listen. That's what you need to do. You have to listen. So clearly he wasn't in a place to listen. And then the other interaction I had was people saying like, I have experienced discrimination. Um, I had one story of, of this woman that was explaining to me how she, when she was a little girl, she had a black doll and she couldn't take the black doll outside. Her parents wouldn't let her because people would be offended and how that makes her an expert on racial issues. No, your life has never been, you know, you have not, it's not personal to you. You couldn't take a doll out. Like that has nothing to do. So they don't realize that in, that's fragility too. Wanting to set yourself as I understand and I am a good one because I've experienced this. No, no. We all participate in white supremacy. It's a system that we all participate in. And if we cannot acknowledge that we participate in that system, somehow we're going to continue to uphold it, even if we don't notice, even if we don't recognize it, even if it's not conscious, but subconscious. So I see pastors wanting so badly to separate themselves from the fact that they are a part of the problem, that the only option is one, to put themselves as part of the solution, or two, to deny the reality. Um, 
Therefore, they continue to perpetuate the same problems because they are so used to being the good guys. And that happens with white people in general. They are so used to this idea that they, you know, it's called white exceptionalism. We are the good guys. We are exceptional. Um, there is no way that we could be the bad ones in any. Yes, we all participate. We all do damage. We all do harm. And um, a mature, responsible adult leans in to discomfort and listens to the other to be able to stop doing harm. I see a lot of evangelical pastors particularly doing the opposite, resisting, setting themselves up and taking this as an opportunity to actually um, capitalize from it. Mm -hmm. So they become the experts, they write the books, they do the sermons, and they invite people to be a part of what they are doing and how they are the solution bringers. You cannot solve white supremacy as a white person. You need to let people of color lead Absolutely. because you don't even know what it feels like. You don't know you know, what, what the experience is like. People have told me, I mean, racism doesn't exist. I've never experienced it. And I tell them stories and they're like, wow, I had no idea that happened. I'm like, of course you didn't because exactly. it doesn't happen to you. Exactly. <laughs> That's why you need to listen because your experience is different. There are, there are parks, I live in San Diego, California, which is a, a diverse city. There are parks here in San Diego where I don't go with my kids unless I'm, my husband's white. So unless I'm with my husband, I don't go mm -hmm. because the times have gone. I've experienced so much violence from white women telling me how to raise my kids, telling me that my kids are wrong, telling them, telling me that they have to call the guards because my kids are playing, to, you know, doing things that are normal kid things. And white kids are doing the same thing, but my kids doing it is a problem. I had a woman tell me that I shouldn't speak to my kids in Spanish in front of them. Um, no. So I don't go. I don't go to yeah. these parks. Now, would a white woman ever know that that happens? No, because they don't get that. Exactly, they don't receive exactly. that. Exactly, so exactly. how could white people lead us out of white supremacy if they don't even know what to look for? You know, we need the voices of black people, indigenous people, Asian people, different people of color. We need the voices of different. We also cannot have Christians lead us because Christianity is a privileged identity. Exactly. That's why Christians get so defensive too, because they are like, no, 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 we are, people persecute us. No, you are not persecuted in America. You are a privileged identity in America. And you need to grapple with that and center the voices of marginalized people, which means atheists, Muslims, you know, Hindu, Sikh, different religions and different belief systems that are not the main dominant identity in America. But it, it's hard for Christians to be able to let go of power. Absolutely, because, and I say this often, is especially with white evangelicalism, is so rooted in white supremacy um, that they they really struggle. <laughs> they really struggle. Oh. And, and I remember I, at one point, I was in a predominantly white space as far as a church. And it was very unsettling for me. Um, it was very uncomfortable. And I'll just be very honest. It, it didn't feel safe. And I remember I said that to her. And I was like, in white evangelical spaces, I don't feel safe at so, all. I am valued as a demographic, but not in my personhood. Not as what I experience um, in day-to-day -day life what people who look like me experience in day-to-day -day life. It is never addressed. It is, we get to go on about our, our merry little way because we have the privilege of not having to deal with it head on. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that has bothered me so much is 
you don't get to try to be this dominant voice now when it's been happening for years, generations, and you've been able to completely ignore it. And now because you definitely feel like you have to say something or you're going to look like a jerk. Like, like if you don't say something, you're going to look like a jerk. And so for me, that was one of the issues that I had with the whole Andy Stanley post. It was like, okay, so if George Floyd's last breath was an invitation for you and you now accept, what does that say about the Trayvon Martins of the world or the Mike Thank Brown, you. like all of these other bodies that died, had their breath left their bodies? That And it, it's like, did that not matter then? Like, I, so I never understand the, the, the thought process but then for me it always comes back to this is white fragility completely yeah. you know what i'm saying so for me it has been it's been i think i've always known it but it's been super irritating for me during this period of time um and even with the lecrae situation i think for me on the other side of not just somebody trying to change white privilege to white blessing and saying slavery. I don't even know how you think people going through any type of <laughs> slavery no, or no. I, I just, I, anyway, um, for me, it also brings up the point and kind of what I was saying earlier um, about who they're bringing to the table. I really struggle with us trying to make um, entertainers, artists, actors, make them activists and educators when there are people who are doing the work because typically those moments will happen where and i could see it on lecrae's face where he's trying to like did he just say that <laughs> like and, and he's trying to yeah you can see he's he's like how do i say that was wrong without right without losing my job and without you know like <laughs> Sparking his fragility to where he becomes perhaps more violent. Exactly. Like you can see his face going like, hmm, you know? And um, that, that's the act of violence that you were talking about. Because even putting someone in that situation, and, and I think the thing that's been frustrating is it's been two things. Number one, because they are censoring their voices. But number two, it's like, well, make me feel better okay kind of educate me a little bit tell me everything and it's like well wait a minute like i i was telling somebody black and brown people indigenous people we deal with a lot of trauma we're trying to deal with our own stuff and sometimes you putting the burden of educating you like when we're in the midst of processing and we're in the midst of leading a movement and we're in the midst of trying to just survive everyday life. It's a lot. And I feel like it's not fair. And it's in what you were saying, it's an act of violence towards me because it's yet again, another scenario of you not even considering like not well, even. And, yeah, go ahead. And you know what? It's, it's what you were saying. Uh, they are like, I had no idea. I mean, George Floyd woke us up. Well, have you not been around? Right. Have you not been watching? Because this started, I don't know, back in the 1500s, you know, when you decided that this was the land of milk and honey and that you were the chosen people of God. Therefore, this was your land and you had a claim to it. And the people in it were for you to enslave and for exactly. you to mistreat and for you to abuse. And then because there weren't enough, then you went all the way to Africa because they were also people that you got to mistreat and you got to enslave because you were the chosen people of God. So are you not, we're talking about 500 years of white supremacy 
married to Christianity, Absolutely. abusing, um, harming, oppressing black, indigenous, and other people of color in the name of God. But you're telling me George Floyd woke you up? I don't think so. I think that what happened is that social media now is making it evident that all of you have racial are racists, really, you know, because that's that's the reality. You all are racist because you've been uh, raised in a society that is racist and that is just embedded in white supremacy. And now people are holding you accountable and you realize I have to say something. Absolutely. But I mean, this isn't new. We haven't we just we didn't just started talking. We didn't just start talking about it. People have been screening these for hundreds of years Absolutely. you just had the privilege of not having to pay attention to it because it wasn't affecting you yet but the movement of liberation the movement of black indigenous people of color saying no more we're done has gained more and more traction because we've been finding each other because thanks to social media thanks to the internet we've been able to say like hey we're not alone i don't have to fight this thing alone because it's oppressive it's what you were saying it's so exhausting to fight it alone we find one another and we say no we can fight this together and demand better together they realize there is more power in this movement now and they say well apparently i have to do something now but you, the privilege of you being able to say wow this just now no this just now not it's been 500 years and until the church is able to look at themselves in the mirror and say we have upheld we've been a huge weapon of white supremacy in the world and we've upheld it and we've supported it and we need to repent and do better i don't trust them absolutely and, and i feel just like you i feel absolutely unsafe in evangelical spaces in general but more so in white evangelical spaces white evangelical spaces i walk in and i almost feel i can't breathe you know especially yeah. as women um there is that extra layer of oppression um, because we're women and then you're a black woman, I'm a, I'm a brown woman. And, and we walk in and it's, you just feel like you can't breathe. Exactly. And anything you say, it's going to be, you know, picked apart. But when they are ready to prop you up as a, as a token, like, look, we are diverse. Oh, they'll happily use you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there are, <laughs> I think what's interesting to me is not just the privileged piece of it that they got to ignore it for so long. Like to me, it's that not so much that they ignored it, but they dismissed it away. I can't yes. tell you for how many generations we've been told, Oh, you're making that up. There's no, what do you mean? What Absolutely. doesn't exist anymore. And to dismiss somebody's experience who's saying your behavior has been intrinsically violent towards people who look like me, black, brown, indigenous people in this country. And for you to be able to just say, you're nah, you're making. And, uh, and here's the thing. White evangelicals were like the leaders of that. Yes. We're all God's yes. children. No, there's no more. <laughs> there's no. Racism. And, and there are entire books evangelical christian books explaining why white people are superior to everybody else with the bible so you don't get to say you didn't play a part in this you just don't get to you know the reason why segregation didn't end when jim crow laws ended is because christian christian organizations decided to start private schools where they would not allow children of color Absolutely. Every time it's been Christians leading the movement towards racism, leading the movement towards segregation, towards separating. Who, who was it that said that black and 
white people couldn't marry. You know, who was it that said that interracial marriages was a sin? The word was sin. So, no, they don't get to wash their hands off right now. We are holding them accountable and they don't like it. Absolutely. So, in a way to, to kind of um, distance themselves from the accountability, then they invite a few black and brown people that are palatable to them. Uh, and then they decide that they can change terms, which, you know, or they can change history in itself. And when we hold them accountable, I have a, I have a highlight actually on my Instagram where I've been holding pastors accountable to their violence, to their um, hypocrisy, to their um, allyship that is just performative, you know, so posting things that are, oh my gosh, look at me. I, I want the cookie. I want the gold star. I am the good one. Uh, but then their commitment doesn't, doesn't show when black brown indigenous people come to them and say, hey, this is the violence that I experienced at your church. Um, there are black women that have had the, the cops called on them by white pastors and the white pastors keep blocking all of us that keep asking them about it, but they were happy to post a black picture for Black Lives Matter. Holding them accountable, one, one has been, one has responded, okay. The rest of them block me, the rest of them delete my comments, the rest of them pretend I never said anything. Um, one, one leaned in, kinda, not fully, but kinda. Right. Everybody else just pretended, they deleted my comments, blocked me, silenced me, which is another weapon of white supremacy. Um, I'll just silence you so that the people that are watching me um, think that everything is fine and I've never received any pushback from anybody. That's disingenuous. And, and for people that say they are Christians and they love God and they don't like to sin, well, that's lying. You know? So I, I don't know how they feel comfortable being dishonest about where they are. If they could just lean in and say, I am not doing great with this and I need to learn, then we'd be happy to say, cool. And I have entire lists. And how many people have made entire lists? You know, we have black women creating documentaries to explain these things documentaries that are like top notch uh we have people of color all over writing the books and doing all the things and saying like you want to do better here's all this information all you have to do is can you just sit down and be quiet for a minute Absolutely. and listen and let us lead could you let us lead and they're like oof no too far exactly because my voice still needs to be dominant I mean, I'll, I'll let you be on my platform, but I'm not going to lend my platform to you. Like, there's, that's the difference. Like, I'll let you be on it with me, but I'm not going to give my platform over to you because, like, that's too much. I'll use you. <laughs> right. But I won't prop you. Exactly. You know? I'll, I'll exactly. use you, but I won't lay down my privilege to ensure exactly. that your voice is heard. But I'll be happy to use you if you want me to use you. No. Somebody asked me if I could preach at an evangelical church about these things. And I... I this is complicated, and this is my own personal um, conviction, not anything anybody else has to. But I asked them, how do you feel about LGBTQ people? Because I will um, bring that up, right. you know, because equality means equality for all. Um, and that includes LGBTQ people. And they were like, well, we are not affirming. And I was like, then I can't preach because I can't receive money from you because you're going to silence me and you're going to censor some of the things. I cannot talk about this. Yeah. Um, and oh i think i lost you oh there you go you're going to censor me and you're going to tell me that i cannot touch on that 
And in that, I will be betraying an entire demographic of people that have been oppressed by the church. Exactly. So I can't take your money uh, unless you let me preach completely about all the things. And then the money that you were going to give to me, you donate to an LGBTQ like nonprofit, which it's always the answer is no. Um, so that means that I am willing to lay, like put down opportunities in order to be an ally, in order to say, yes, I stand with people because your money is not worth, it's not worth anything to me. Right. You know, I'm, I'm fighting here for equality. Exactly. So what is it? So that's when people like Lecrae and, and I understand we're all trying to survive in this mess of capitalism, you know? So I'm not, I'm not judging Lecrae. I'm just saying because his income is so deeply tied to evangelicalism, He's going to be limited in what he can say. Absolutely. And so, so you, you saw that though, where he when people were like, "Dude, what were you doing? Why didn't you say anything?" And he was like, "Well, I'm going to lead from grace and love." That responsibility is always put on Black, Brown, and Indigenous people all the time. We are expected right. to not. But be in angry. the meantime, <laughs> yeah. And in the meantime, you have the Rod Parsley saying, "You guys are all angry." Exactly. But we don't get to say that. We don't get to say you guys are all racist. Exactly. But they exactly. get to look at us and be like, God told me you guys are all angry. Sit down. Of course we're angry. Do you want me to beat you for 500 years and see how you react? Exactly. And that's the thing. So when you see um, Jane Elliott, is that her name, um, who does um, work with yes. white people. And, and there's that clip where she's talking to a room full of white people. So it's like, stand up if you would like to be treated like African-Americans or black people. Nobody says because they know. And so that's why I never accept this. I didn't know. Yes, you did. <laughs> like you knew, but your privilege allows for that to happen. Your privilege allows for you to ignore this. Your privilege allows for you to not have to be concerned about your children. Your privilege allows for you never to have to have a conversation with your kids that black and brown and indigenous people have to have with their children all the time. We have to rob them of their innocence early just so to make sure they can get home. Like, you'll never have to worry about that because you live in your nice little comfortable bubble and it's like things are happening in this world. And so for people who are like, okay, I hear you. I, I think that I'm complicit in it. You know, what can I do? Like, how do I change? How do I turn this around? How do, how do I stop being a party to white fragility? What, what do you say to them? I love Lisa Renee Hall is one of my teachers, you know, one of the people that have changed my life. She's a black woman in Canada who's doing a lot of work in implicit biases. And she says something that I love that is the first step is to become aware. So what you're saying, I'm aware. I am complicit. I'm aware. People, white people often jump from awareness to motion. I want to do something. I want to change the world. And this is their white savior complex. They think it is their job to save the world. It's the, co the codependency of white supremacy in them. She says, when you do that, you keep doing harm. After awareness, the job then is to interrupt. So you have to sit and follow black, indigenous, and other people of color. And you have to start interrupting your implicit biases, actively interrupting your implicit biases, becoming aware of them. And that takes time. It takes time of being quiet, of watching, of learning, of reading, 
of not taking a leader role, but just sitting back, listening, learning, you know, listening to the stories, um, reading about history, reading about how this is not new. Every time you see your uh, fragility bubble up, sitting with that discomfort and saying, why am I uncomfortable with this? You know, every time you see something that you're like, that's impossible, looking yourself and seeing, is this true? I'm going to, I'm going to research instead of going and asking like, that's not or saying that's not true or saying, approve oh, that to me. Nobody has to prove anything to you. Nobody owes you that. So awareness is the first step. The second step is interrupting, interrupting your implicit biases, being actively. And that because we've been um, conditioned to live in our subconscious mind, to just let our subconscious mind run, like run havoc and do whatever it wants. It takes a lot of time to become aware beings, to interrupt our subconscious biases, to um, all the time be paying attention to why am I feeling that way? Why am I thinking that? Is this appropriate? When I look at a black person, what do I feel? When I look at a woman with the hair, like a brown woman with her children, why do I feel like I have to teach her how to parent? You know, sitting with all of those feelings and not denying them, not appeasing them, not pretending they are in there. And once he, this is a habit to you, once this is a habit, you will know what motion to take. Um, but before that, you're just moving for the white savior complex. Now, that means that, you know, a teacher will know what to do. That means that a, a social worker will know what to do. That means that a parent will know what to do. But the work be begins within healing from white supremacy within dismantling white supremacy within first. You cannot dismantle white supremacy out there if white supremacy is still in here and dismantling white supremacy in here is a lot of active work. So you're aware. Great. Now, what are you going to do to dismantle white supremacy from within first? That's excellent. And I, and I want to say this too, because I keep seeing these videos and they really start to annoy me. Um, we don't need you on your knees. And like, there's this video of all these white people on their knees in front of this black family. And they're like, oh, forgive us for it. And it's like, yeah, dude, that. get up. <laughs> I, I want you to deal with what you were just saying. You have to be aware of it and I need you to deal with it. And the thing that I tell people all the time, I've had several people, you know, um, who are white reach out to me, whether it's, you know, via my DMs, private message, whatever. And they're like, oh my gosh. And I was like, so here's the thing. I was like, don't give us something that we did not really ask you to do. Mm -hmm. Like you just made up in your mind that this is mm -hmm. what, oh, this is what I'm going to do for you. This should make you feel better. Right. I said, because you're playing still into white fragility. And mm -hmm. again, it's that white savior complex of, you know, what's best for me and right. what should make me feel better. And it's like, no, I was it's like, funny. Absolutely. And I'm like, one of the things that I personally feel is that in those moments to check it, there are going to be moments that I, as a black person, will not be in and spaces I won't be in and conversations I won't hear. But if you are really going to be about the work, it's really going to be about challenging the people that look like you who yes. hold the power, right? And like those, it's those moments that really make allyship real. <laughs> not, yeah. not because you are putting a black box on Instagram. Like that's, that's, yeah. that's cute. Performative. Exactly. It's performative. I'm like, but in those spaces where it will cost you, that's that right there. That's where it shows itself. That's where allyship comes in. And it's like in those moments of, um, I know some people felt different ways, but um, 
Serena Williams's husband, I think his name is Alex, I can't remember his last name, and he's like, hey, I realize I sit on a board that's all white people. Hmm. No. And he was the co-founder of Reddit, which Reddit is still a very big social media platform. Yeah. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to step down. And not only mm -hmm. am I stepping down, I am asking that the board, please put somebody who is of color on the board to give a different perspective. Like I'm going to remove financially. I'm going to remove myself from all of, I'm going to lay down my privilege here because I understand that we need diverse voices at the table. And I yep. feel like that's what it is. It's you, it costs you something. Yes. And how are you going to, once you invite them to the table, how are right. you going to ensure they are safe enough to speak up at that table? Exactly. Because they invite them to, they, they keep inviting people to the table, but managing what they can say and managing their, no, you need to ensure that your spaces are safe for black, indigenous, and other people of color to bring everything they have to bring to the table. Absolutely. Because if I don't feel safe to speak up, I don't care that you brought me to the table. Absolutely. And I, and I see, and I, I work in higher education, so I see this a lot of well let's invite you know a black person a brown person an indigenous person let's see let's see and then that person gets to the table and they're like okay so this this and this and i'm like oh no 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 that's that's too that's, I get a lot. that's that's too much that's that's too do you think you could maybe like if we like chop it down maybe no and you're like i said what i said if you're bringing me to bring my experience into what i deal with every day then maybe you should listen and instead of denying what my experience is say why is that your experience what what is happening that is created this 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 ecosystem of oppression like what what is going on and how can we fix that not denying what somebody's experience is yeah, curating our lives to fit your narrative is not appropriate. Yes. Um, it's just absolutely not appropriate. I've, I, I actually am dealing with that right now where I'm trying to get something published. Um, and it's a progressive uh, publication. Mm -hmm. And they asked me if I would edit some of my sex positivity conversation. No. Yeah. No. You like, then don't, don't publish it. me. Don't publish me. <laughs> right. It's but like no. I said what I said. And I'm not going to change anything that I said. Um, yeah. And so I find that a lot when I challenge um, harmful behavior that churches have done. Yeah. Um, and people take it as like I'm attacking them or I'm attacking God. And I was like, if anything, I think God agrees with me. <laughs> like I'm challenging the stupidity and the harmful behavior that certain actions have caused people that you need to own up to. I said what I said and I meant what I said. I'm not going to adjust anything that I said. Um, right. And so consistently dealing with that of wanting people trying to censor you, but always telling you, we want you to be honest. Just tell it, like, be truthful. And it's like, well, I and am. You are, it'll cost you. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's like, but I am. And you, I mean, I, I get the, you just sound so angry. And I'm like, listen, Jesus flipped a ton of tables and made a whip, a whip. I'm just talking here. You should yeah. be grateful. We're not making whips yet. Exactly. Exactly. It's an appropriate response. It's an appropriate response to be angry about oppression. It's actually, I would argue, it's the only appropriate response. 
um, if, if you're not expecting us to be angry, then I don't think you're listening at all. I'd be angry for you. If the tables were turned, I'd be angry for you. Exactly. So don't edit our response, our emotions. Don't edit them because you're uncomfortable with them. Just for a second, wonder what your response would be. Because honestly, I, I said this a little bit ago. I said, white people are really funny. Because if it, they were asked to put a mask on and they are freaking out because their, their rights are being taken away. And I'm like, you guys would not survive in the skin, in a skin of color for a day. No. You'd be burning things down everywhere. You know, we've been, especially black and indigenous people have been incredibly, incredibly patient, you know, uh, yeah. and loving and kind. And you just say, well, you're so angry. Watch history. Yes, that's the appropriate response. You would not be responding as well. Absolutely. Well, listen, I feel like we could, this This is a conversation that there's so many layers to it. Like you can just keep unpacking it. But um, as we bring it to a close, um, if people wanted to get in touch with you or um, to follow you on any social media, how can they do that? Um, I am on Twitter and Instagram and that's where I'm the most active right now. And it's just my name um, without spaces or without anything, just Joe and then Luman, my last name, which is my, the German name that the patriarchy gave me. Um, but that's on Twitter and Instagram, the same handle. And then I am on YouTube, though I haven't been able to upload a lot of videos, but I want to get back into it. And I'm on Patreon if anybody wants to explore more how to decolonize their faith. Um, that's a way to support my work and to also start doing the work of decolonizing your faith so that you start um, uh, stripping Christianity, your faith, really, from white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism. So it's not a weapon of harm, but it is a weapon of liberation. Absolutely. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining me um, for this episode. And um, I think listeners and hopefully those who are listening and watching will gain something from the conversation um and i think that they will <laughs> um and so yes, just thank, <laughs> thank you for joining me and um i appreciate it and guys i thank you for watching and um i definitely will see you on the next episode thank you